You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Brian McCurta from Archivum Romanum Societatis Jesu, Rome. This paper was entitled Tides and Denominational Change in the 1590s, a Wexford Woman's Dispensation. Down to the mid-19th century, the rural population in Ireland was obliged by law to contribute to the upkeep of Church of Ireland clergy by means of tides, a measure denoting a proportion of annual agricultural income. In an article of 1986, Morris Brick has discussed the nature of tides in early modern Ireland. He has traced the social and political tensions they entailed. For the period before 1641, our period, in his study of the Irish career of Bishop John Brommel, John McCafferty has shown how wresting control of church resources from the landed laity was a central part in Brommel's programme of forming a strong and well-resourced Church of Ireland. Within the Catholic community, tension regarding tides surfaced at the beginning of the Confederation of Kilkenny in 1642, tension between Catholic landowners, nobility and gentry, and the Catholic hierarchy. The General Assembly at that time declared that Catholic laity who held former church properties and tithes before 1641 would retain possession until the issue was decided in a future Irish Parliament. In this paper, I wish to present an earlier perspective on tithes in the pre-1641 period, a perspective from within the Catholic community. The surviving sources for such an exploration are extremely rare. A single document from the year 1595, a widow's dispensation to hold tithes in three parishes in County Wexford, affords a small window in what was happening in the late 16th century. At a crucial transitional time, as separate ecclesial structures were emerging and Catholics were beginning to determine how to support their own clergy. The document, an original, is signed by Dermot McGrath, the papally appointed Bishop of Ross. It is preserved in Trinity College in a volume containing various materials concerning Irish recusants in the early 17th century. Based on internal evidence, this collection served as a dossier on Catholic church life by the early 1610s for use in government circles in the struggle against recusancy. How and when the document came into the possession of the Dublin authorities is unclear. It may have been seized from Bishop McGrath and subsequently filed in this collection as a result of a search or raid by government agents 
as the Crown regained control of Munster towards the end of the Nine Years' War. By the mid-1590s, an exodus of, of survivalist native clergy from the established church, Church of Ireland, in the southeast of Ireland was underway. This occurred in tandem with the departure of the laity, those church papists who hitherto had given a nominal adherence to the new ecclesiastical regime, as the government relaxed efforts to enforce conformity arising from the need to retain loyalty in the Nine Years' War. Thus, control of church resources was a major issue for the Catholic community in the century following the introduction of the Henrician Reformation in Ireland. By the beginning of the 16th century, many parishes were impropriate to particular religious houses. The religious community received the tithes of the parish and in return undertook to supply a pastor. With the secularisation of the monasteries from the 1530s, these arrangements devolved to the new owners of monastic properties. By 1615, it has been estimated that nationally about 60% of church livings were impropriate, so in the control of the laity. A high proportion of these were in the hands of those Catholic laity who benefited from the dissolution of the monasteries. While regional variations in the denominational composition of land ownership between Catholics and Protestants were emerging, most undertakers under the Munster Plantation and the O'Briens, Earls of Thomond, were Protestant, Catholic landowners predominated. As a result, in a majority of Irish parishes, the landed elite was Catholic. It controlled the resources, chiefly tithes, which nominally were to support the clergy of the established church. The emergence of parallel church structures from the last decade of Elizabeth's reign necessitated diverse systems of maintenance for both sets of clergy. The economic consequences of this situation for the Church of Ireland have received some attention. However, for want of documentation, the use of tithes to support Catholic priests, much less the impact of this issue on relationships within that community between churchmen and property laity, has been little noted. This text, a dispensation to hold parish revenues, signed by a papally appointed bishop ministering in the southeast, illustrates how the recusant community in an anglicised part of Ireland addressed some issues posed by Catholic ownership of tithes in the 1590s. The document exemplifies the confusion, the competing claims, and anxiety of conscience among some who benefited from the secularisation of the Church's medieval patrimony. It also preserves the official response of the relevant Catholic Church authority to an individual situation. In contemporary Catholic theory, parish temporalities, in effect chiefly tithes, existed for the maintenance of Catholic pastors. However, circumstances in Ireland were exceptional. De facto, these resources were in lay hands, requisite or Protestant, and were likely to remain so as long as Protestants retained power. From the 1580s, Catholic prelates were exercising jurisdiction over a wide territory. Customarily, these men customarily issued dispensation, giving members of their flock permission 
to keep the revenues from ecclesiastical property with some conditions. These conditions included that a part of the income should maintain the local Roman clergy, though without indicating a precise formula. By the last decade of the 16th century, it was a major role of these papally appointed prelates ministering in Ireland to issue a range of dispensations and decrees to the laity. These touched on a variety of situations. They included marriage within the prohibited degrees of kinship, divorces, and the keeping our attention of tithes. When Robert Lawler, Vicar Apostolic of Dublin, Kildare and Ferns, was arrested in Dublin in 1606, a number of these documents, largely written in his own hand, were discovered. Given the prevalence of lay ownership or lay appropriations of benefices of church properties, responsibility for granting dispensations to the individual recusants who controlled these churches fell to the prelates in Ireland, as indicated in the present text. While it was probable that many of these dispensations were issued in the period from about 1580 to 1641, extant documents are extremely rare. The few surviving decrees hint at an an anxiety, possibly widespread, among holders of church properties regarding the rectitude of their acquisitions. Exceptionally, one of the largest beneficiaries had recourse directly to the Holy See. In the mid-1630s, Richard Nugent, Earl of Westmead, made great efforts to acquire a papal dispensation for his family's many impropriations. With the emergence of Catholic self-government in the 1640s under the Confederation, clerical demands for a restoration to the Roman Church of properties lost after the Reformation was an issue in debates about a possible settlement of the conflict with the Crown. The present text illustrates one woman's acquisition of church properties in the early 1590s. It also raises associated issues of conscience at a time when Catholic clerics were becoming more assertive in regard to the changing ecclesiastical landscape. The parishes concerned lay in the vicinity of the town of New Ross in County Wexford. With origins in the time of the Anglo-Norman settlement, by the early 17th century, New Ross was one of the lesser important port towns of the southeast. It had entered into a period of decay. In this urban context, when the long-established colonial elite still held sway, the struggle for control of local church resources was underway. The temporalities involved comprised half of the rectory of Ballyflane in Ferns Diocese, the vicarage of Rosberkin in Ossery Diocese, and the quarter part of the rectory of White Church in Ferns Diocese. Now, these parishes lay just outside the town of New Ross on the border between the diocese of Ferns and Ossery. In the 1591 visitation of Ossery Diocese, the incumbent of Rosberkin, the clergyman in charge, John Tobin, was one of nine clergy in the diocese who were deprived of their living because they refused to conform to the established church. From the late 1560s, 
the tithes of some of the parishes listed belonged to a number of New English figures who were presumably Protestant. Helena White, a Catholic widow, had only recently acquired these properties. The previous proprietors were conformists to the established church. By 1610, however, the tithes no, no longer in her or her family's possession. It has not been possible to find references elsewhere to this lady, Helena White, but the surname and the location suggest she belonged to one of the patrician merchant families prominent in the t- town since the 13th century. Changes in parish life in Irish towns during the 1590s formed the broader context of her acquisitions. By then, in those parts of Ireland where confessional change, however minimal, had taken place, a withdrawal from the established church, the Church of Ireland, was underway. This was associated with the return of continentally trained priests, especially to the towns of the south and east. Educational links to Catholic Europe from the late 16th century, together with earlier established trading patterns with the continent, reinforced the Catholic culture of port towns, including New Ross. Contemporaries noted the particular influence clerical returnees exerted on women in the households of the social elite. Thus, at a local level, women were prominent in espousing the old the recusancy of the Catholic faith. By the late 1580s, a widow's home in New Ross was an established venue for celebrating Mass, for storing liturgical vessels, and for sheltering returned seminary priests. The case of Helena White, a widow, offers further elucidation of how propertied women contributed to the support of these priests. As Kenneth Nichols has noted, Irish port towns in the 16th century had many rich widows with means at their disposal who were in a position to acquire property of various kinds. Helena White exemplifies this trend. Although it is not clear how she obtained these resources, they may have been a legacy she inherited or resources she purchased. As a result of Helena White's recent gains, these parishes, parish resources had passed from Protestant to Catholic hands, a fact noted by Dermot McGrath, the papally appointed bishop. Thus, the Catholic widow's new properties may be seen more broadly as part of the struggle from about 1590 in the old established towns, as in New Ross, for control of the church's patrimony. By the beginning of the 17th century, the parish church there was in contention between the civic elite and the clergy of the established church. On Christmas Day in 1605, the town's sovereign, or leading the leader of the town's government, arrived in the church, accompanied by a crowd of about 200, quote, with an extraordinary noise and tumult, and, making their popish offering, then disturbed the poor minister from making a sermon which he had prepared for his small auditory, unquote. 
A similar incursion took place on Easter Sunday in 1606. Sometime prior to these events, the high altar had been removed in line with the liturgical changes of the new establishment. Yet, on several days in the year, the townsmen continued to gather there for traditional devotional purposes at the place once occupied by this altar. The dispensation granted by the bishop contained the proviso that a part of these these revenues was to be used for the support of local Catholic clergy. The form of the dispensation suggests that it was a common practice for propertied Catholics to make similar requests to the prelate, and that these were granted in the same formulaic fashion. The case of Helena Weiss illustrates how some revenues designated for the upkeep of the clergy of the established church were informally used in part for the maintenance of Catholic priests and how women property holders played a role in this process. Catholic proprietors like Helena White may have been concerned that resources for the support of Church of Ireland clergy could be a source of disapproval or opprobrium for her in her local community, overwhelming the adherents of the the old religion. By the early 1590s, in the southeast as elsewhere in Ireland, antipathy towards the established church was growing. Worship conducted under the auspices of the new establishment was linked in the popular mind with the devil, which provided a strong incentive to avoid their services. Animosity, however, was not limited to the issue of church attendance. Clearly, many propertied Catholics benefited from the widespread secularisation of the old church's patrimony from the late 1530s onwards. Yet, this transfer could at times be the subject of strong social sanction. In the early 1610s, for example, the Franciscan Donatus Mooney noted the terrible nocturnal visions and disturbing noises which attended the new residents who had acquired the friar's convent at Drogheda. In addition, he noted that the wife of Moses Hill, the Protestant official who purchased the building about 1612, how the wife was struck by paralysis, not by any natural cause, but as a sign of divine displeasure at the profanation of the friar's habitation. In preaching and spiritual direction, Catholic ecclesiastics or churchmen undoubtedly articulated the clear expectation that possessors of ecclesiastical resources should use part of these revenues for the maintenance of the Roman clergy. As confessional alignments hardened from the 1590s, the threat of social disapproval, as well as the more personal issue of conscience, may have inspired those who had acquired church properties or whose families had made these acquisitions, these may have inspired them to make propitiatory arrangements with influential Catholic churchmen in the localities. These arrangements included a formal declaration of permission from the relevant prelate. Dermot McGrath, to whom Helena White turned for church validation of her recent gains, was the most senior cleric of the Roman Church functioning in the southeast in the early 1590s. 
From the year 1580, he was the papally appointed Bishop of the Diocese of Cork and Cloyne, covering the greater part of County Cork. In 1600, he claimed to have been the only functioning Catholic bishop in the entire church province of Cashel, so basically the, the south of the country, for the previous 20 years. Thus, in the absence of other resident bishops, McGrath operated beyond the confines of his own diocese. He was involved in the appointment of prelates in other sees. Jointly with Richard Brady, the Bishop of Kilmore, mainly Cavan, he received a papal commission to institute Robert Lawler as Vicar General in the Diocese of Dublin, Kildare and Ferns. Like similar churchmen prior to the re-establishment of a resident Catholic episcopate after 1618, he travelled widely, rallying support for a clear and unambiguous adherence to Rome. These men actively contributed to the erosion of participation in the established church among the communities of Gaelic and Anglo-Norman identity. It was not uncommon that some Catholics in the 1590s were uneasy in conscience by holding church properties and that these were seeking a dispensation from duly authorised ecclesiastics. In 1598, for example, the Jesuit James Archer granted dispensations in which a contribution towards the recently established Irish college in Salamanca, Spain, was levied. A similar ecclesiastical faculty was exercised by Jesuits in England in the same decade. In response to the increasing rigour in imposing adherence to the established church in the 1580s, Bishop Dermot McGrath petitioned the Holy See for faculties to absolve clergy and laity whose conduct had been at variance with the norms of the Roman Church. This included the issue of deriving profit from church properties. The situation of Helena White and her request for a dispensation illustrate neatly the role of a Catholic prelate in validating lay ownership of ecclesiastical resources with a concomitant obligation to support Catholic clergy. In this way, the individual layperson could hope for peace of mind and some protection from possible criticism within the local community. In conclusion, the case of Helena White, exceptional in the documentation which has survived, enables us to point to several more general observations regarding the use of tithes within the Catholic community at the turn of the 16th century. It offers an example of Catholic survivalism within ostensibly Church of Ireland structures, in this case for the support of the clergy. It further hints at how the growing number of returning Catholic clergy were financed from the 1590s onwards. It also points to the key role of those women with material resources in the support of those same Catholic clergy. And finally, it illustrates the role of Tridentine clergy, prelates and groups, including the Jesuits. It illustrates their role as facilitators of a clearer Catholic identity in the anglicised parts of Ireland. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, 
please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.